Tonight on PBS News Weekend, as the war in Ukraine enters its second year, Nick Schifrin reports from the battle-weary nation on efforts to not just fight, but rebuild. We are hopeful, we are confident that we will win this war, that our lives will be good. Then, the pandemic has seen a big increase in sleep loss and the use of medications to tackle it. We learn about the best practices when you have trouble sleeping. And a Missouri law barring police from enforcing some federal gun laws is creating confusion. Good evening, I'm John Yang. As Russia's invasion of Ukraine enters its second year, Russian President Vladimir Putin says his country cannot ignore the nuclear capabilities of both the United States and NATO countries. In an interview, he repeated his claim that NATO and others want to see Russia suffer a strategic defeat. His comments came as Russian state news released drone footage showing devastation in the city of Bakhmut, where frontline fighting has been fierce. The Ukrainian military says battles there are going on, and Russia has been unsuccessful in its offensives. Meanwhile, in a weekend marked with war commemorations, Ukrainians gathered in Odessa to remember volunteer soldiers who have lost their lives over the past year. He decided on his own to join the Territorial Defense Battalion. He worked for eight years as a sailor, but he then told me his nerves couldn't take it any longer. I said, son, we're at war. Who told you to join the battalion? He told me, who else would defend you, mother, if not me? Later in the program, a look at Ukraine's efforts to rebuild in the midst of war. There was fresh violence in the West Bank today, even as Israeli and Palestinian officials met in Jordan to try to de-escalate growing tensions. Earlier today, a Palestinian shot and killed two Israeli brothers, and then by tonight, Israeli settlers were on a violent rampage through the West Bank, setting cars and homes on fire. It's the worst outbreak of settler violence in decades. It comes after the Israeli and Palestinian security chiefs meeting in Jordan agreed on steps intended to calm the surging violence ahead of the Muslim holy month of Ramadan. In a statement issued by the host country, Jordan said Israel agreed to put a four- to six-month freeze on authorizing new settlements in the occupied West Bank. President Biden's national security advisor, Jake Sullivan, welcomed the meeting, call it, calling it a starting point. In Nigeria, voting extended into a second day in the nation's closely contested presidential race. In some places where the polls had already closed, ballot counting was underway. In other places where technical glitches and logistical challenges caused delays, voters were still lining up. The country's election commission says they expect to have a final vote tally within five days. Up the coast of southern Italy, at least 59 people aboard a migrant boat died this morning when their wooden craft smashed against rocky reefs in stormy weather. Debris from the boat littered the shoreline as Italian Coast Guard and police searched for bodies. Searches were also underway at sea and from the air for survivors. The boat left Turkey several days ago. Many of its passengers were from Afghanistan, Pakistan and Somalia. The Italian Coast Guard said at least 80 people survived. The long-running comic strip Dilbert is disappearing from a number of the nation's major newspapers. The cancellations come after Dilbert creator Scott Adams publicly referred to black people as members of a hate group 
and urged white people to get away from them. The Los Angeles Times, the San Antonio Express News, and the USA Today Network are among those calling the remarks racist, hateful, and discriminatory, and are dropping the strip. And an update, the Howard University men's swimming and diving team that we told you about last week has won its first conference championship in 34 years. Howard's the only historically black university with a swim team. Still to come on PBS News Weekend, why the use of sleeping pills is on the rise and a Missouri gun law creating confusion for police. This is PBS News Weekend from WETA Studios in Washington, home of the PBS NewsHour, weeknights on PBS. Over the last week, we've marked the one-year anniversary of the full-scale invasion of Ukraine by visiting the front lines, investigating Russian war crimes, and examining a new united Ukrainian identity. Tonight, with the help of the Pulitzer Center, we look at the country's efforts to build a new Nick Schifrin and videographer Eric O'Connor report on the challenges of reconstructing a country and fighting historic corruption as it fights a war. Across Ukraine, the scars are staggering. Entire neighborhoods destroyed. Hundreds of thousands of homes burned out. Ukraine says reconstruction could cost more than a trillion dollars. But in Bucha, a suburb of Kyiv where the Russians left behind horror, and destruction, construction is beginning in earnest, and the town is laying a new foundation to build a new future. 61-year-old Volodymyr Perekrastenko shows me the Russian armored vehicle door that flew into his house. They're upgrading the insulation and fixing the walls in a home that he's lived in all his life, and before him, his father and grandfather. This is our nest. We grew up here, and we want to keep living here. Why have you chosen to rebuild even though the war continues? We are hopeful. We are confident that we will win this war, that our lives will be good. It's important to show people the hope. Andrew Nagirich is the director of operations for the Global Empowerment Mission Ukraine. A year ago, he was an entrepreneur about to open a new business in Western Europe. On the day of the invasion, he drove straight back home and joined an organization that delivers aid to people living near the front lines and is now rebuilding Bucha. The government pays to fix the roads, but it can't afford to rebuild homes. Most of that cost is being covered by the Howard Buffett Foundation. And the only reason this is possible is that the Russians left. There are cities across hundreds of miles of the front line where no one is even considering rebuilding. How long do you think it will take for Ukraine to rebuild? Years, maybe up to 10 years, just to come back where, to the point where we was before the war. But Ukraine doesn't want to go back to February 2022. It wants to build a new version of itself with technologic and economic reforms. We will need to finish these economic transformations to move away from the Soviet Union and to move away from socialism to a full-fledged market economy. Mikhail Fedorov is a vice prime minister and the minister of digital transformation. He invited us into his millennial hipster office. Fedorov was born in 1991, 
the same year that post-Soviet independent Ukraine was born. Before the full-scale invasion, Fedorov led the government's efforts to modernize with technology. Ukraine is the first country in the world to equate a digital passport with a physical one. Especially using an app called DIA that stores all Ukrainians' documents. Today, the app is a wartime tool, how victims of Russian bombing document damage and receive direct government assistance. Fedorov says digitization can also help fight Ukraine's domestic enemy, corruption. It's a different approach to governance. And right now, everybody is reacting very quickly to any problems we have in the government. Earlier this month, Ukraine's equivalent of the FBI launched its largest wartime corruption crackdown. They accused the head of Kyiv's tax service of embezzling millions. And they arrested the deputy minister of defense, accused of overcharging soldiers for food. I can't say that we are absolutely eradicated corruption. That is not true. There are still problems, but I'm saying that now, after the war, once we've exposed problems, there is a reaction. Daria Kalenyuk is the executive director of the Anti-Corruption Action Center. We will push away Russians, but if we will have weak institutions, Russians could simply destroy us from inside through their hybrid oper operations and through corruption. She says the war has changed Ukraine, and Ukrainians, their lawmakers, and international donors will demand a clean government, a requirement to join NATO and the European Union. We understand that EU is not just to have a flag. EU means change of the rules, where dignity and justice and fairness is in the core of values of the EU. And this is what we are fighting for. The task ahead will take a generation, but Ukraine says it must start now, cleaning up the country as it wages the war. For PBS News Weekend, I'm Nick Schifrin in Kyiv. You can watch all of Nick's reporting on the one-year anniversary of the Russian invasion on our website, pbs.org slash newshour. New CDC data says the number of Americans taking medicine to get a good night's sleep is on the rise. The latest study surveyed more than 30,000 American adults about their sleep medication use in 2020, both prescription and over-the-counter. Nearly one in five said they had taken sleep medication during the previous 30 days. Eight percent of adults reported taking sleep medication every or most days in that period, double what the CDC had found a decade earlier. The report also found that women, older adults, and people with lower incomes were all more likely to use sleep medication. Earlier, I spoke with Dr. Karen Lee of Mass Eye and Ear. She's a neurologist and a sleep specialist. I asked her how the CDC's findings compare with what she sees in her practice. Overall, that survey is pretty much in line with what I've been seeing through the years and in my practice. Um, unfortunately, there's been larger and larger amounts of individuals coming complaining about issues with sleep, difficulty falling asleep, and difficulty staying asleep through the year. So that's gone very along with the trend of what we're seeing clinically. The survey also found that women, older adults, uh, and those with lower incomes were more likely to use sleeping medication. Do you see that as well in your practice? Yeah, so that was not at all surprising to see. I very commonly see that women come in with insomnia issues, and I think there's a 
couple reasons for that, that that can happen. Um, and through the years, the survey also looked at a difference between 2010 and 2020. And women these days are going to the workforce a lot more, but a lot of the duties that they have in their home or if they have with children um, have not been reduced. Um, and a lot of their sleep schedule, especially when they have younger children, become fragmented. Um, and so very commonly when I have women that have children, I will ask them right from the beginning, did your issues with sleep start um, when you had children but with your first child? And that's usually the scenario. The sleep becomes fragmented, the circadian rhythm is abnormal, and then that issue just continues throughout time. Other individuals that I have seen that, that are in a lower socioeconomic status um, will come in at their wit's end. Uh, not usually when I want to talk about other treatments that are longer term that take to get benefit, they want pills immediately. They're asking, I need medication. I have, um, you know, children I'm taking care of, or I have this many jobs and, and I just need a, a quicker fix. Are Americans overusing sleep medication? I would say the issue is that they are jumping faster maybe than they have in the past for sleep aids. There's a lot of sleep aids out there, FDA approved and non-FDA approved. And the issue is the way they are indicated to be used is not being used appropriately. It's supposed to be a quick band-aid in a situation until we can get to the point for longer term solutions to fix the underlying sleep issues. And what we see that's happening is they start on these pills, which really should be for a short period, like two weeks. And they're just getting them refilled for years and years and years, right? It's difficult for a variety of reasons, especially for an individual that struggled with sleep for years and suddenly they're sleeping great and it completely impacts their life in a positive way and they're not seeing the negative impacts. Now we have several individuals that are dependent on these medications that keep wanting to use them moving forward. What are some of the negative impacts of using sleep medication? There can be a lot of side effects on your daytime functioning. You can be sleepy, you can be in a fog, you can have a lot of morning hangover from these medications. Some of them have um, anticholinergic side effects where you can have like blurred vision or dry mouth or urinary retention. Um, the concern also is at nighttime, especially with elderly patients. We have different recommendations for dosing, for example, for several medications uh, because there are a lot of accidents that happen with falls. People need to get up and use the restroom. Um, and it's, it's all these side effects that can happen during wake time and nighttime. And individuals that are already predisposed to cognitive issues, patients with dementia or mild cognitive impairment are even impacted more often from these medications. What would be your advice for viewers who may be having trouble sleeping? What would you tell them if there were a patient coming into your office for a first visit and saying, I, doctor, I'm having trouble sleeping? Yes. So the first thing I would say is it's great that they recognize that that's an important issue. Us having a good quality and quantity of sleep is really critical. Uh, but I need to start with a full sleep evaluation to see if there's any sleep disorders that you have, such as obstructive sleep apnea, restless leg syndrome, um, certain things or sleep diseases that are contributing to or exacerbating your insomnia, right? And then once I break down with the root cause of the insomnia and I address it, if what's left is what we call psychophysiological insomnia, which is there is no specific sleep disorder or specific other medical condition that's contributing to your sleep. Your sleep is poor just because you are um, under stress or you have poor relationship with your mind, body, and sleep. The gold standard for treating that is cognitive behavioral therapy for insomnia called CBTI. 
And that has been very effective in the short and long term to fix insomnia issues, whether falling asleep or staying asleep. Now, in certain individuals, they may need sleep aids in conjunction with that, or if the effects aren't uh, happening fast enough at a, at a rate that it needs to happen for an individual, we can use sleep aids in addition to this with the goal of always tapering down the sleep aids after. And that is the issue is when you start sleep aids, the first one always isn't the, the one that you would stick with. We have to see if you can tolerate it, number one, uh, there's not side effects that are too bothersome and that you're getting benefit from it. And then we have to figure out how we're going to take it away in the future. So the bottom line is that sleep medications should be a Band-Aid, as you say, short term. Yes. And the appropriate individuals, right? And we have to make sure there's not something else that's going on, right? And another concern is that sleep aids can make underlying sleep disorders worse. So for example, a lot of sleep aids um, are muscle relaxants and can um, collapse the airway more or cause more difficulty breathing when sleeping. So if someone has an underlying disease such as sleep apnea, which very commonly causes insomnia, we want to be safe and make sure we're not actually making the issue worse and more unsafe by giving them a sleep aid for the wrong reason instead of treating another issue that's causing their insomnia. Dr. Karen Lee of Mass Ioneer, thank you very much. Thank you. Good luck, everybody. Missouri has some of the most permissive gun laws in the nation. The state doesn't require background checks and doesn't require a permit to carry a concealed weapon. A state law passed in 2021 even makes it hard for police to enforce federal gun laws. Gabrielle Hayes is a NewsHour communities correspondent. She's based in St. Louis. Gabby, what is this law and how does it work? Well, John, essentially, as you noted, this law was passed uh, in June of 2021. Governor Mike Parson signed it. And essentially what it does is it prohibits state and local agencies um, from helping the federal government enforce federal gun laws that, uh, if by Missouri standards, um, are an infringement on a person's right to bear arms, their uh, Second Amendment right. This was a law that was challenged almost immediately, uh, and it does come with some penalties. What are the penalties? The one that you will see most often is that uh, a violation of this law could come with um, a $50,000 penalty on law enforcement. And so um, that is something that um, is noted um, in some of the pushback against this legislation and also um, in feedback from law enforcement across the state. And you mentioned that it has been challenged. Who's challenging it? And where do those uh, challenges stand? Those challenges are ongoing. So on a state level, we know the St. Louis City County, Jackson County, um, and other counties across the state, other cities across the state have joined in on a lawsuit uh, pushing back um, on the act. Also, last year, the Department of Justice filed a lawsuit against um, the Second Amendment Preservation Act, calling it um, invalid. Attorney General Merrick Garland said that it impedes on law enforcement's operations in Missouri and their ability to do their jobs. You mentioned uh, hampering law enforcement's ability on the, to do their jobs. How does this work in practice? 
Well, I think the, the answer to that is kind of twofold, because I think if, if you were to Google um, this law and law enforcement, you would see stories from across the state of Missouri, um, from different counties and cities where uh, law enforcement officers are talking to their local journalists or um, seeking clarification from the court and explaining um, what this law means to them and, and, and the ways in which it makes it difficult for them to do their jobs or deciding whether or not they should be cooperating with law enforcement. Uh, because law enforcement agencies have partnerships with uh, federal agencies, right? And so when this law came down, we have stories of not only law enforcement officers, but also prosecutors um, having the conversation of, okay, what do we do now? Um, and so... I think that that has been a big part of it. Uh, and also, violating this law could come with a $50,000 fine. So uh, we've had law enforcement uh, officials in our states asking for clarity on what it means specifically and how exactly it translates to their day-to-day -day work. Is the, is the sticking point that it's not every federal gun law, it's, it's federal gun laws that, in their view, infringe on Second Amendment rights, and it's interpreting that? Yes. So, so essentially, it's uh, any law, rule, or regulation that Missouri considers uh, an infringement um, on a person's right to bear arms. Very good. Gabrielle Hayes, NewsHour Communities Correspondent in St. Louis. Thank you very much. Thank you. For Gabrielle's full report on Missouri's gun law and the community and law enforcement response to it, visit our website, pbs.org newshour. And that is PBS News Weekend for this Sunday. On Monday, my report on why crime has become the top issue in Tuesday's Chicago mayoral race. For all of us at PBS News Weekend, thanks for joining us. Have a good week.